Hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Angle on Producers, the show where we take you behind the scenes and into the shoes of producers across all corners of the entertainment industry. As always, I am your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, thank you so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me. And hey, if you want more, please make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and sign up to the newsletter, which you can find at angleonproducers.com. This week on the show, I'm so delighted and excited to introduce you guys to my associate producer, Sarah Bakian. We decided to do something a little bit different, and so Sarah took the reins as the interviewer while I took the hot seat. I've gotten so many questions, um, and I often am asked about my story and from my perspective on things, and so while I've been busy with the doc and not able to pump out as many episodes as I'd like, I figured this would be a great opportunity to deliver that to those of you that have requested it, so I hope you enjoy. Sarah joined Angle on Producers about six months ago at the start of the writer's strike and has been working with me behind the scenes to help all of these episodes to life. Truly couldn't do it without her. She comes from the world of development and the writer's room support staff, having worked on comedies and dramas for both broadcast and streaming. As this is her formal introduction to the show, she would like the listeners to know two things. One, that she's available for staffing as a showrunner's assistant and writer's assistant, if if you know anyone looking. And two, she was super congested during the recording of this episode and is 90% sure her voice normally sounds less annoying. (laughs) Oh, Sarah, love her. So in this episode, we cover everything from my immigration story to egos at work and the one set experience that uh, still haunts me to this day. So without further ado, here's, I guess, me being interviewed by Sarah. Welcome to your podcast, Carolina. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Are you excited? Are you nervous for me to interview you? Um, I'm not nervous because I love talking. That's why I started a podcast. So no, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what your brilliant brain wants to ask me. They're all non-salacious questions. Boring, (laughs) non-salacious. Yuck. I mean, we we can have some sprinkles of salacious. Okay. Salacious sprinkles. That'll be fun. But there's so much about you. And I've only like known you for not even six months. So there's so much that just on a personal level that I don't know. So I feel like we must get the full life story starting from when you were young. You were born in Brazil. Yes. And you moved to the States at nine. What do you remember from that time? And what was the path from Brazil to Los Angeles? Great questions, Sarah. Thank you so much. (laughs) First question, killing it. For having me. Uh, Yeah, um, let's see. So my parents had, my mom has a sister who lived in Richmond, Virginia, and they, you know, had had sort of like fed up with Brazil, Sao Paulo, and sort of like had seen where there was a ceiling for them, for us, and really wanted to try something different. And so they felt encouraged to in their early 30s with three small kids, I have two brothers older and younger, to pick up their lives and move to America and start from zero. Um, And so that's why we landed in Virginia, which is kind of like a random place. I don't remember too much because the way that my story unfolded is that for a variety of reasons that I certainly didn't understand at the time, we were never told as the kids that we were moving to America. We only found out after the fact. We came on a big family trip to go to Disney, to go to like, you know, just have a fun summer in America. And then it was like June 
of 94. And then a month later, all my cousins left and then we stayed and we were like, what? And that's when my parents were like, you guys are starting school in a month. Like you're, you live here now. And we were like, oh shit. Like we didn't say that. I I probably said something similar, (laughs) whatever version of that a nine-year-old would say, but I can't imagine. I, I actually, I do imagine. I think about it a lot, like how scary that must've been for them at that time to just pick up with your whole family and move to a country where you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, how scary it must have been. But I think that experience, looking back many years later, that like immigrant beginning is really what lit a fire in me to like, no matter what I was going to do, I knew I was going to do my best because I had sort of understood that there was a lot of sacrifices made on their behalf so that my brothers and I could pursue our dreams, you know, and have a better life than they did. And I always took that very seriously. But yeah, for the first like six months, I don't really have a lot of memories because I I didn't speak English. And even when I was put in school, like there was no programs at the time for kids like they have them now called English as a second language ESOL. But at the time, there was no one else at my school who wasn't American. So they started the program because of my brothers and I (laughs) being in this elementary school. And I was very grateful that I had a second grade teacher who was very um, kind and taught me English on her free time. So I would spend my lunches with her. And after school, she would just help me. Her name is Miss Kenny. And I think about her often. Um, She passed many years ago, I try to reach out to her and thank her for that time of my life. But she's really the only memory I have, which is why I bring her up. I didn't have friends. I didn't really, you know, hang out with the kids. I was a weird kid, probably because I was just like this weird girl who didn't speak English. And I also had no teeth. Um, because my dentist in Brazil at the time had told my parents that at this age, this should have happened. And because it hadn't happened, they convinced my parents that the only course of action was to remove my four front teeth, my four baby front teeth, like these four front teeth. And my parents were like, okay. So they did. And it took about a year for them to grow in. So imagine this kid who's like, you know, (laughs) doesn't speak English, doesn't have her front teeth, like just... You know, it was what it was and kids are mean. So eventually they came in and it was fine. And and people compliment me on my smile a lot, you know, now that I'm an adult, but I always think it's funny, like the dental journey that I've had, but that's a whole nother podcast. If there's a podcast on people's dental journey, um, please invite me on. I, I love to be on it. <laughs> Can confirm she does have stunning teeth. <laughs> drop drop your tips in the description yeah. for, the, for the episode. <laughs> I know we're all wondering. That's so interesting. I didn't know that you didn't speak English coming here. I have some friends that were immigrants that came in and didn't speak English. And one of the ways that they learned was by watching a certain show or, you know, movie over and over again that they loved. Was there something like that for you? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Full House was a big one. A lot of those shows from uh, there was like a Friday night lineup that had like Full House, Step by Step and Family Matters. And so yeah, a lot of television reading Rainbow was like, I loved it so much. So yeah, television is a huge part of like that chapter of my life and how I learned the language and also music. Like I was obsessed with like listening to music, printing out the lyrics before you could even really find them and then just like studying the words phonetically. So I've always had an ear for it too. Was there a certain TV show or movie that you remember watching when you were younger and thinking that's what I want to do professionally? No, not really. I mean, I definitely fell more into the camp of like performing. I always like was like, I want to, wow, I want to like share this gift with people and make them feel something. And as I got older, um, because of I think the trauma that was coming to America, I, I had this really interesting like Now I just dissecting it as somebody in my 30s. But at the time, I feel like I had two personalities, like Hannah Montana, you know, like, 
at home, I was very like rebunctious and vibrant and my, my full self. And at school, I became this very shy version of myself because I think I just took school so seriously because I was like, I'm not here to mess around. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to like get good grades and make my parents proud. When I found theater and acting, it helped me to kind of like play and bring this version of myself into this environment that for so long was treated with such, you know, I was the girl that sat in front and I didn't talk to anybody and everyone thought I was like stuck up because I just didn't, I didn't engage. I would go to theaters and watch movies and be like, wow, like I want to be a part of this industry. You know, Kate Blanchett just as an actor for me was huge. Meryl Streep, the greats at the time really inspired me um, and was like, I, I just wanted to more than wanting to see myself on screen, the feeling I always had was I just want to make someone feel the way I feel when I have this experience at a movie theater, you know, and however I can get there, that's how I want it to be. And then how did your family react to you wanting to pursue performing arts? They were all about it. My mom was very supportive. Like, I think I've, like I said, have great parents who were like anything we wanted to do, they were all for it. You know, my mom would take me around to dance classes and then, act, you know, acting uh, classes and auditions. And at this point now I'm living in Florida. So three years in Virginia, then we ended up in South Florida for a job that sponsored my dad for the green card, which was huge. And it's actually an important note because as an immigrant, a lot of people struggle with the whole visa thing and how to stay here legally. And I was very lucky in that by the time I was 18, we had gotten the green card. And so because I was a minor, it automatically applied to me. But if I had come here even a couple of years later, my story would have been very different because the challenges that you have, it's just navigating the industry period, right? And then when you add to that, navigating this industry as a person who also has to deal with the visa of it all is like a whole thing. And there's a wonderful film I'll shout out called Problemista that Julio Torres uh, wrote and directed. He's like an SNL dude who's hysterical. And it's a really fun, wacky film with Tilda Swinton. But it, it's an allegory essentially for how challenging it is for someone who's just trying to get a visa sponsor here in America just to be able to stay and follow their dreams. So I had a lot of lucky and fortunate things happen that allowed me, I think, to be a little further ahead in, in my pursuit of my dreams. But so it wasn't a surprise to my parents when I fell in love with acting and that was what I wanted to do. But I had, you know, at 17, I had toured, I had went, been to NYU and toured the campus and Emerson was actually my dream school in Boston. And I had visited a few sort of acting conservatories in state and out of state. But I knew that when it came time for college, my parents weren't going to have any money to help me. And so I had to make the decision to either go out of state, get in debt or go in, in state, which at the time had a wonderful like program. And so that's what I did. But I also knew enough at that time to know I don't want to get a degree in theater because I know that that's not going to take me anywhere. So I was essentially pursuing a degree in business with a minor in psychology while doing like acting on the side, right? So doing fringe festivals in Orlando, because that's where I went to school. I acted in like some Halloween Horror Nights, you know, I, I just was like doing whatever I could get my hands on. But I always felt like the ceiling was so low in that market. And, and so I knew that like, I had to get out and I had visited LA and I knew LA was like for me. So speaking of performing arts, you came out to LA and for the first three years before producing was even on your radar, you were pursuing acting. Something that you said in your New York Film Academy interview that really struck a chord with me was that you were tired of living this sort of waiting by the phone life. Like you were tired of waiting for someone to put the ball in your court and you wanted to be active in your career and be able to, you know, put the ball in someone else's court. And that's how kind of producing came to be for you was you were trying to find 
find these backdoor ways to make opportunities for yourself. What was the process like producing for the first time? How did it feel kind of taking control in that way? Honestly, it felt very natural. You know, I think I've never been a reactive kind of person. I've always been proactive in everything I've done. And the thing I've learned after doing 90 episodes of the show is like the people that seem to gravitate towards producing, they're driven very much by a personality trait. You know, there is a sense of like juggling multiple balls, wanting to be at the forefront of pushing things forward. And everything I've done in my life, I've had to have that part of myself be very active. This entrepreneurial spirit, this belief that like, I don't know things, but I'm going to figure it out, right? Like I always felt stifled in environments where people were just okay. I don't know, following something that felt boring to me or that they were just not happy pursuing because it's what they thought they should be doing. So when it came time to pivot, it was really organic. And the first thing that I produced was a play uh, called Spike Heels in 2010. And at the time, I was doing so much, like I was working two or three part-time jobs to keep shit afloat, you know, because producing certainly wasn't paying the bills. Um, I ended up fundraising for that all by myself. I did everything. I did marketing. I was the lead of the show. I produced it from start to finish. And at the time, for me, it just meant like putting things together, just making it happen. I didn't still quite understand what a producer's role was. And that is usually like the earliest definition of what a producer does, right? They just get shit done. But I really enjoyed the experience. But the thing that I realized at that time was like, you can't do both in this capacity. Like it's really hard to be the sole producer of a show and also the lead of that same show. You really need support and it is a collaborative art form. We know that, but that experience really taught me that. And it made me go, okay, I need to be working with people so that when I can step in to do the acting, which was the whole point at the time, I actually get to do the thing that I've been doing all this other stuff behind the scenes for and get to play and get to have fun. And when when Spike Heels closed, you know, so many people at that time were like, wow, this is an incredible show. I can't believe you put this together by yourself and you didn't know what you were doing. Will you produce my short? Will you help me with this? And will you help me with that? And I think like when you've been an actor who is in the eyes of the industry, just another actor, just another cute girl with brown hair and a sea of other girls who are similar, even though we're all unique snowflakes, we know this, right? <laughs> it's nice. It's validating to have someone come up to you and go, wow wow, you're actually really good at this. Why don't you help me with this? And to be wanted and requested in that way to get to then be proactive versus reactive, where it's like you do this show and you're like, gee, I hope they like me and will cast me. You know, I liked that thing of like, all right, I got something that people seem to really value. Let me go see what re- what this is really about. If it's not just for Carolina's interests, you know? How do you reconcile being in an industry that's so based on relationships as someone who is, you know, so career driven? And, you know, like me, I feel like I, you know, am constantly trying to find the next way to get to the next point in my career. And it's, it can be really disheartening when, you know, you go after a position and and you realize like, oh, like that person got it, like they had this relationship or, you know, that person knew them from college and they got in, you know, this way. And it's not always, you know, necessarily merit-based. Like how are you able to cope with that? I think now, 17 years into this journey, I can reconcile with it and I can cope with it some days. And I think because it's taken me this long to build a network that I have to feel like I have enough contacts and visibility where people know me as well, because that's the other thing. It doesn't matter if you know that person, if they don't return your call, it's not as effective. But I think 
you know, had I gone down the path of being an assistant, rising the ranks, like that's the the upside of going that path, I think, is you really come out with a network because you start at the same time and everybody moves up fairly quickly considering. So the people that are my my peers, you know, now they have friendships of 15 years with people that started out as assistants where I'm just meeting these people for the first time last year. So I'm behind in developing those relationships. But I think you just have to own your story and own your decisions. Then what I have that I bring to the table that others maybe don't, maybe I don't have the network, but I have an experience of production and execution that a lot of other people don't. And they could look to me and go, wow, like I wish I could step on a set. And no, I wish if I had to put a movie together tomorrow, I could do that, right? Part of actually why I started this podcast is because I wanted to create that network, but from a place of like, I don't need a job from you. I'm not trying to like pitch you a show. I just want to understand your story because no one was really talking about this and the very little visibility producers would ever get was always press focus on a specific project. And I was like, I want to know their story and how they've navigated. And I think in having that in those conversations, it coincidentally was a thing that started to develop that same network. So I came in with an intention of like, others must be feeling this, let me be a conduit. And by doing that, I ended up fixing, if you will, the problem that I was facing myself, you know, so it's truly like a gift, for sure. Since you were talking about connections, and you mentioned, you know, you didn't go to film school, you didn't have those connections, you obviously came from Brazil. And you know, it's not like you had a family history in the business, you kind of had to build your your entire network base from the ground up. Yeah. And I get this question a lot. And so I figured I would pass it along to you. What are some key networking tips for developing genuine long term relationships? I honestly think it's it depends on the context of where you're going for this networking opportunity, right? If you're invited to someone's house for a party or a birthday and it naturally happens, that's one thing. But if you're going to a film festival and you know that's like more of the intention, be intentional about why you're talking to that person and what you really want from them. You know, if you're going to an event where you know who's going to be there doing your homework ahead of time, you're not going to be able to meet everybody. You're not going to have deep, deep relationships with everybody. So if you can just focus on a handful of people that you really want to know or that you naturally vibe with, those people know other people that can expand your network. But you can't try to like know everybody because you'll have a bunch of shallow relationships. And really here, what matters is the depth of the relationships that you have. So it's almost better to pick a handful of people that you're really going to invest in that hopefully also want to invest in you that are going to help you take you to that next level. So after a year of just like hangs with this person, I can go, hey, Sarah, I noticed that you know, blah, blah, blah. Can you connect me? And then it's like, oh, yeah, of course. Hey, here's a good human that you should know who also is really good at this thing. And I think that's the most effective way to network. It takes a much longer time to build what you're trying to build. But I think that when you look back, the depth of, of what you've built, I think matters a little bit more. There's that part. But then the other part is you just got to be doing the work. Like what is the thing that you want to be known for? You got to be the person doing that work. Because if you're also always out there just networking and being like, I'm a producer with multiple things in development, but I can never point to anything you've ever done then you're just a schmoozer, you know what I mean? And unless you just navigate in those circles and there's just a ton of money to keep you, you know, always hanging out where the people are, then I I don't know. I I just, I don't think that that's like for blue collar people like us, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah, like you just, so I think you have to be able to point to the work so that when I'm out and people meet me, they go, oh, right, like you did blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah. So then it validates that you're not just another person because there's a lot of people here who talk a lot of the talk and don't do a lot of the walk, you know? 
they can point to something you've done, now they've had a good experience with you, then they're more eager to help you out. So in terms of the work, do you still find yourself creating most of your own opportunities? Or where do your projects that you decide to work on, where do those opportunities come from for you now? They do come from a lot more places and I have a lot more access. I think the one of the biggest changes that I experienced over the last two years is I definitely feel since going into Issa Rae's company that I am now on a different level of access you know, like I can call up most people and get some kind of response. It's not like people are like, Carolina Grope is calling, let me drop everything. But there is a level of respect and visibility that you do get once you've been in a circle or in companies of places that people recognize. They just, people just have a different perspective and lens on you. So that is something that has really changed. And so because of that, it's it's silly, but it matters, you know, having a press release with the job announcement makes a huge difference because Hollywood is built that way. Like I didn't build the machine. It's like you have to learn how to play the game to your advantage and you have to fight for those opportunities that are going to be able to have those calling cards to say, oh, yeah, I actually was this and I did this for two years, you know, it just puts you on a different level. The The rooms that I've been able to access and the networks of people is completely different now because of that opportunity, for sure. So since you brought up Color Creative, let's jump over there. A couple of years ago, you decided to move in the house. And I feel, you know, from an outsider's perspective, I have more development knowledge than production knowledge. But even so, in-house producing and independent producing seem like two completely different ballgames. What are the key important differences that, that everyone should know? I mean, independent producing, you're typically on your own. And unless you're independently wealthy or you have some other side hustle that keeps the bills kind of paid, you know, when you are doing anything as an independent producer, you're not getting paid until that project goes into production. And even when it goes into production, you're probably the first person to cut your fees to back into a budget, you know, because you care about that thing. And that's sometimes the only money you'll see for the lifetime of that project. And that's depressing. And that's a whole separate podcast as well. But I think if you're an in-house producer, then you have less freedom because typically it's like, this is what the company wants you to produce, or here's the projects they want you to focus on. But the upside is you have the power of a company behind you. And it really is like the difference that I encountered just having a Carolina color creative email address versus if I email someone from my Gmail, it was astounding that it's like, the email server is still Gmail, but the perception changes completely the moment you have an email address at a company that people recognize. And I think that's it, you know, the volume of projects and people that are coming in every day and leaving and, and just the moves that people are making is so large that I think it's so overwhelming. And I think psychologically, people just look to what's familiar to mitigate the risk because it's all about mitigating risk, right? At Color Creative, I was brought in to do a very cool job. And so... It was a really, really wonderful experience to get to help build something that was, in a way, a, a completely new experience and outside of my comfort zone. And while, you know, there were, for a lot of reasons, I didn't get to fully build what we wanted to build during the time I was there, I got to learn a lot and I got to be exposed to so many other cool things that I now take with me in my tool belt into the next things that I'm doing, particularly with like the inner politics of Hollywood, the stuff that you can't really teach anybody, you know, being close to like the representation side, because Color Creative as a management company, just seeing how they handle clients and how those conversations happen and the strategizing behind the scenes was really fascinating as someone who typically has been a producer, emailing managers or trying to get, you know, managers, clients attached to projects to see it from this other perspective was really, really helpful. And what prompted you to move in-house? Was that sort of a pandemic-driven decision or... Look, <laughs> when... <laughs> 
When Denise Davis calls you, who's Issa Rae's producing partner and incredible human, and says, hey, I thought you could be great for this opportunity, you don't say no, right? Like certain things just kind of come to you at the right moment and you have to just take a leap of faith. And and a lot of the things that in my career have happened, that pe- like the, the points of infliction I can look back on, it's very miraculous. It's not that I wasn't doing the work. I was out there grinding, but it was always something just felt like it would fall from the sky at the right moment and be like, hey, have you thought about doing this? And I'd be like, I haven't thought about it, but I'm going to say yes, even though it wasn't in the cards. It wasn't what I would, I didn't map out my five-year plan or anything. So yeah, so when Denise had sort of thought of me for this position because of the versatility of my experience, because I did so many random ass stuff as a producer along the way. I wasn't just to this, right? I had a very broad range of experiences as a producer and as somebody on the physical production space. It's funny, that's actually what made me the right candidate for that specific role, you know? So yeah, it was a hell yes, because I knew it was going to be an invaluable opportunity and to get to work, you know, with with women of color who I had long admired and helped them build anything. I was like, who would say no to that, <laughs> you know? Totally, totally get you. Jumping back a little bit to 2013, when you were shooting Autism and Love. Yes. This is the doc that got you your first Emmy nomination. A very belated congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. For outstanding social issue documentary. At what point in the production process did you think, wow, this could really be something big? Never, not once, (laughs) not for a second. Autism and Love is another one of those moments I was just talking about where I never sought out to do a doc. I never sought out to do anything in the autism space. I knew nothing about autism. I had no business being there. It was a serendipitous thing where I had a survival job working for a doctor who was a sort of pioneer in the autism field that I got off of Craigslist, okay? I was a remote admin exec for this guy before that was like a hip thing. And that was what sustain me financially so I could pursue producing so I could go shadow a producer on set for free and not die, you know, financially and be in debt. So it was a means to an end. But one day he came to me and was like, I think there's something here. Would you ever want to produce a doc? And I was like, yes, similarly, you know, like it wasn't in the cards, but I was like, why would I say no to this? Like, this would be such a cool opportunity. And there's so much to learn. And I've always like, because I've loved psychology and I love humanity. Like for me, it was just like a no brainer, but I knew that we were doing something special because I knew that no one at the time was really thinking about or talking about adults on the spectrum and romantic relationships specifically. And so I knew it had possibility to be something great, but truly it was like lightning in a bottle, especially when it comes to docs. Like you can't predict what access people are going to give you or what's happening in their lives at that time. But we just got very lucky to be at the right place at the right time for the individuals that we ended up following. And it turned into a really beautiful, well-crafted documentary. Had a great team, obviously, behind the scenes and a wonderful director, but never in a million years could I have predicted that that was going to be the thing that was going to launch my producing career and also go on to get my get me my first Emmy nomination. I think only when we started doing the festival circuit, we premiered at Tribeca in 2015, because that's how long things take. And to see the reaction of audience members coming up to us, parents of people on the spectrum, tears in their eyes saying how much this movie, this film meant to them and how grateful they were it existed. That was when it was like, okay, wow, this is this is important. This matters. But it never felt about like the accolades for me. It was just the accessibility 
because back then docs were still just getting the traction to the, to the momentum that they have now. So not every doc out of festivals was getting acquired. So you don't know if you're going to get, you know, if your movie's going to be seen beyond a festival audience. So yeah, it was picked up by Netflix, which was a big deal at the time and then had a run on PBS, which is what got us our Emmy nomination and still the gift that keeps on giving truly. And I'm very, very proud of having been a part of telling those stories. So walk me through it. You're working for this doctor who says, you know, (laughs) (laughs) would you ever want to do a documentary on, you know, this subject? And you're like, cool. Yes, absolutely. What's next? What do you do? Who's the first person you call? The first, I mean, the first thing I had to do is learn about autism because I didn't really know much about it, like beyond a very like preliminary definition on Google. So the first thing I, we did, it were like, well, let's get you know, really deep in with the autism advocacy groups here in Southern California. So we just started talking to everybody, everybody on Facebook and saying, hey, we're filmmakers, we're making this doc, like, it's not just two filmmakers, we're backed by, you know, uh, that then he became an EP on the documentary, the, the the doctor that I mentioned, who is, you know, a pioneer of this field, and we're just trying to get access. And we just started talking to everybody, you just start doing your homework, kind of like I've always done from the ground up, I don't know anything about it. But we have Google, we have, you know, with Google, plus a passion for something like there's just very little you can't do these days. And you just keep going, you keep digging until you find that one person that gives you the right intro and the right access. And it just builds from there, but it takes time. Um, And we actually which is pretty crazy for a doc. We only filmed for nine months because we had such a tight budget that I knew we started filming, I think it was January of 2012 or 2013, I can't remember. And I knew that like by December, we had to be picture locked because we didn't have money to go on. The other thing I did is every documentary feature film that was out at the time that was like character driven and nuanced, I found a way to contact those filmmakers or those producers. I emailed everybody and their mother until enough people got back to me to be like, how did you do it? What advice do you have for me? Like I leaned on other people that had done it before clearly well enough that it was distributed and getting awards and got their advice. And so one of the advice that I had received was make sure you have a clear (laughs) end date to the project. Otherwise you can keep shooting forever because it's a doc. The stories never really end. And so we knew that like whatever we get in this period of time, we have to craft a story out of and that was just kind of it which is why it feels so miraculous that we got the kinds of stories that we got in the very limited time that we had with the subjects of the doc punk for jesus save your soul was also critically acclaimed but this was scripted versus unscripted yeah from a production standpoint what to you are the biggest differences between you know producing in the scripted space versus unscripted um it's a lot more people you have a lot more department heads and crew you have a script, that's the biggest difference. And so the way you approach prepping and putting everything together varies because you actually have the blueprint. You know exactly what you're doing, where you need to be every single day of the shooting schedule. So there's a lot more of a plan that's formed, whereas with docs, depending on the kind of doc, you're really you're creating a blueprint of the house you think you're going to build, but you don't really ever know what it's going to look like until you're on the other side. Whereas I think with scripted, you really have to go in knowing like what color the walls are going to be in the house. You know what I mean? There's a lot more planning, a lot more on the table because you're dealing with a director who has a clear vision for every single thing from from wardrobe to production design. Like you have to make make that creative vision happen to the best of your ability within the budget and and the timeline that you have to bring it to life. I also think like you're also dealing um, oftentimes with, you know, actors and it's just a different thing altogether when you're dealing with talent at that level versus on docs, oftentimes you're dealing with normal people, more regular people, not always, depending on what you're doing. And so it's just a very different 
approach to the conversation that you have with the people that are on camera. Do you have a preference between that more structured scripted setup versus the kind of chaotic unknown of unscripted? No, I like all of it. Honestly, I like switching it up. I think if I was just doing one thing forever, I would get a little bored. You know, it really comes down to at this stage of my career. It's like it's really about the people, honestly, because you're going to be in the trenches with them for so long. I just want to feel like I'm having a good time, generally speaking, and creating something cool. And that, you know, the journey to getting to the end of the product is going to be worth it because I've had enough experiences where that wasn't the case. And I I don't want to repeat that, you know, so that's really what I try to seek. It doesn't always happen. But that's what I try to find when I start a project. Yeah. Speaking of starting projects in 2019, you started this project, Angle on Producers. I did. Podcast. Fun fact. Wait, should I interrupt you? Or should I let you ask your question? You should absolutely interrupt me. It's your podcast. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, well, fun fact is actually, I started the show in June of 2018. That was when I started recording. And I had batched a bunch of interviews because I was supposed to launch January of 2019. And then I booked Sylvie's Love. And I was like, there's no way I can launch a podcast while I'm also in production on this period film that was all consuming as they all are. But why I shared that is because through making that film, I met Eva Longoria, who then ended up being my first episode. So sometimes you have a plan and then the universe shows you a different way, right? Because if I had launched, not that I, I would probably could have still gotten her interview, but I wouldn't have had the time and the space to kind of orchestrate it a little bit differently. So yeah, so summer of 2019, a year later. It's great that you interrupted because you answered one of my questions. I was going to ask, how did you get Eva Longoria as the first guest? But my real question is, so many people are thinking, you know, oh, I should start a podcast about, you know, this or that or the other or whatever it is. What made you finally pull the trigger on this? Like, was there some kind of event where you were like, oh, you know, everyone should know this. Like, I really wish everyone, you know, knew this thing that I now know. It was twofold. One, I was always having conversations like this off mic with producers who were friends, people in my life. And I was like, man, I wish like we could bottle this up and share it with others. You know, I wish that this was accessible to me when I was starting out. And then I also had a friend who had um, like a wellness and yoga podcast that she had been doing. And this is 2018. At that point, she'd been doing that for four years. So really ahead of the podcast boom. And she's like, you really need to get into the podcast space. Like, you're just so great on camera. You're so dynamic. You're a great speaker. Like, I think you would enjoy doing this. But I was like, what business do I have? Like, who am I going to talk to? Like, what I'm not going to do beauty. I'm not going to do like, what else am I going to do? And how can this tie into something that can be a creative outlet for me in between jobs as well? You know, when I conceived it, it was all of those sort of factors implicating it. I didn't want to have something creatively that I needed to rely on a huge team for because I had actually had a short film that I was going to, this was actually my last hurrah of acting and producing. I had a short film that I had spent months gearing up to shoot. I was going to act. I trained with the weapon specialist, with the, with the fitness trainer. It was like a very physical role. And we were two weeks out from going to Wyoming to shoot this short and we lost our financing on a short, which is like sucks no matter what. But on a short, it's even worse because you're like, it's not that much money, but I was not about to get into like credit card debt for it, you know? So two weeks out, I got really depressed because I'm like, man, like I've spent six months putting everything into this. And now because one person changes their mind, it's all gone. And so I wanted to create something that could also be a creative outlet for me that wasn't going to rely on a bunch of people that I could do no matter what from anywhere on my own time. And that's also part of the genesis of the show. But that's when it was like obvious to me, no one was talking to producers. 
you know, I was talking to them all the time, but no one was recording it. And so I was like, I think that producers would welcome someone taking interest in their journey and talking to them. Absolutely. And you're putting the ball in your own court. As is the trend. Exactly, as the trend. It's like you you have to be creating and manifesting your own opportunities all the time. Like no one came to me and thought, Carolina, you should host a podcast. Here's all the things for you to go do it. No, I had to learn every single aspect from the ground up every single time. So when you look at my career and what I've built and what I've done, I'm so proud of it, but it's like none of that has been handed to me. I've had to claw my way and build from the ground up every single time and if I can do it, like anyone can do it, you know, if this like young girl that came here from Brazil with no teeth was able to carve out a, a place in this industry that others perhaps look upon now and think, wow, this is so impressive and can think all these positive things about the perception of, of what I project as a producer, as a person, then I think it's like anyone can do it too. I really hope that that they, it inspires people to pursue their own goals and dreams. It definitely does. It inspires me. I'm out here producing things now for real. No, seriously. I know you are. I'm so <laughs> proud of you. I've seen you posting stuff. I was like, I know, oh, right? they grew up so fast. I know. <laughs> Look at me, the growth. And the thing I'll say is like, unsolicited advice is like, enjoy this moment of your journey. I think that it's so easy when you're starting out to be like, oh, like this is great, but I want to be there. And oh, this is fine. But da da da, like relish in that because it goes by so quickly. And there's a lot of this industry that wears you down. There's a lot of heartbreak. We talk about this on the show all the time. And so sometimes I've realized now that I'm in my older age, like, you know, young people who just still have this like star in their eyes, like excitement for it, that is so infectious. And it reminds me of like why I got in the game. You know what I mean? So like, hold on to that for as long as you can, because you don't get your first time more than once, oftentimes, you know what I mean? So just really enjoy being in that space instead of thinking it's like you're behind or whatever the fucking inner critic wants to say, just enjoy it. Aw. Yeah. I love that I still come across as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed because in my head, I'm like a <laughs> corpse, like just clawing my way <laughs> through the dirt, just like, hire me. <laughs> Perhaps, but you, you still have the spunk, you know, the pep in your step. So don't lose it. <laughs> no, I, I'll try my best. So one of your other interviews, you said that two of the most important skills a producer can have are understanding budget and psychology 101. What are the keys to understanding budget in like the very ABC one, two, three sense of it? Like explain it like you're explaining it to a toddler because that's basically what I am. You can read a budget all day long. You can say, hey, this costs $10 million. And you look at a budget and you go, yeah, yep. If I add up all these numbers, it's $10 million. Wow, that's not surprising to anybody. But I think you to truly understand budgets. What I mean by that is to say, you're going to go shoot something for $5,000, make a little budget for $5,000, and then go execute and see what that means. See what every dollar gets you. See where you're like, oh, that wasn't enough. Or, oh, I actually didn't need that. Like Until you actually get to see how something goes from script to screen, from the execution process, it's hard to really, really understand budgets on a deep level, if that is your goal as a producer, which I think it should be everyone's goal, but so that you can, as you elevate, look at a script, look at a budget, look at a schedule and, and understand if that's a viable thing or where you're going to have bottleneck issues or whatever it is. I think it is so empowering, especially if you are someone who just wants to be on the creative side. I don't poo-poo that. That's great. But the more understanding as a creative producer you can have of actual execution, the better of a creative producer you'll be because the notes that you give, the way your brain's going to be thinking and approaching things will be in support 
of what you actually have to make that project come to life. So it's so important to have that knowledge. And that's one of the short ways, short paths that you can get there is by just having something that you're going to shoot for a price point and seeing how it the two translate. You know, people come in with a lot of ambitions for a lot of things they want to do for something. And then you go, it's going to cost you $20,000. And then they're shocked because they thought it would cost five. And it's like, no, here's why. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I can talk about this all day long, but until people have like gone through the experience themselves, it's hard to really like have it like seep into your soul, you know? So that's the first one. And then psychology is because, you know, we are in a creative field. It's a very collaborative field. There's a lot of egos involved. Um, everybody's got, you know, different reasons why they got into this business. So I think you have to understand how you approach speaking to certain people, certain departments, it's just different. How I'm going to speak to talent is going to be different than I'm going to talk to my my gaffer. It's going to be different than how I have to speak to my DP. Like understanding the psychology of all of that, you, you could choose not to. You could choose to be like, I'm just this and this is who I am. But I think once you can finesse the way you deliver something, the way you're asking for something, it helps you ultimately get what you want. Some say that uh, there are shades of producing that can be very manipulative because you are having to like play games in a way to, to get what you want. But, you know, again, I didn't make the rules. It's just, it is what it is. But I think if you're coming at it from a place of integrity, I don't think it's disingenuous to say, all right, well, I got to be a hard ass with this person, especially as a woman, to be taken seriously and be like, this is non-negotiable. This needs to happen by Friday. Versus if I'm talking to someone else, I can say, hey, can you get it to me by Wednesday? No worries. Knowing that they're probably going to get it to you by Friday. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a different intention because you know how that person's probably going to react and where you're going to get the respect to keep things moving. Okay, first salacious question, <laughs> because this one just came mm -hmm. to me. I'm curious, which career demographic do you find you're like placating the most egos in on set? Is it like the actors? Is it the directors? Is it the network execs? All of the above? Do you all of the above? <laughs> um, uh, I think it honestly depends on the show and, and who that person is and where they are in their careers. I've done shows where people are so easygoing and then you have like a diva DP because they think they're doing you a favor by coming and doing this. And then you're like, okay, this is the person got it. And then the actors are super chill. And then you have other shows where it's like, you just never know where it's going to be. But those personality archetypes exist everywhere. And it just, yeah, it's the ego, the lack of humility. Um, you know, I've done projects where I'm like, Oh, the producer is the one. Got it. Okay, that's frustrating. They're the ones that are going to be the diva and the ego and the the director's just like, bah, whatever you guys, just easygoing. You just never know. So that's why you have to be adaptable. And again, the psychology, the mind games of like, if I'm dealing with an ego-driven producer, that's going to have to change how I work with them versus if it's my production designer who I technically oversee, then I can, you know, play that a little bit differently and how I'm going to keep the train on the tracks, you know? Is it like a where's Waldo? Is there always one that you have to find? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Sometimes they reveal themselves early during the interview process. Sometimes they don't. And then you're stuck with them and you're like, oh, man, this sucks. But yeah, it's hard to say. Sometimes it's not even like because they have the experience or the credentials or the awards. Sometimes it's people that have no business being that way and just are difficult, you know, so... I think this business, it allows for a lot of, um, it gives a lot of grace for bad behavior because it's like so creative and they're like, well, this is the DP's process. And it's like, if it's what they need, <laughs> you know what I mean? And no one wants to be the person to say no, 
because it could impact the creative because at the end of the day, what ends up on screen is ultimately all that matters. And I think that's why we have empowered actors and talent so much because they are the end product that we see that audiences resonate with that sell tickets. So I think that's why there's so much of like, whatever you want, you know, fanning them. So along the lines of humility and being humbled, (laughs) have you ever had a career moment where you made a mistake or a faux pas that still haunts you at night? Certainly. Let me think of a good one, a juicy one. Because I have so many of these and I'm always shocked when we ask people and they're like, oh, I can't really think of something. I'm like, I could list you five awful, like nightmarish things that I have done that I think about in like a cycle every night before I go to sleep. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of them. They're so tethered to like specific projects and specific things that now are inconsequential, but at the time, because you're learning, right? That's the thing. You're learning on the job half of the time, which I find insane because you're like, you're handing someone millions of dollars for such a risk averse industry. They wait until you get into production and often hand budgets and projects to like to people who haven't really lived this. But yeah, I mean, there was one project that I was very first time my line produced back in 20, I think 14 or something. No, after after Autism in Love, I shan't name the name of the movie, but it was very hard. I almost left the business. I was like, if this is it, then I'm not, this is not for me. But one of the producers had this whole shady thing where he had kind of been blacklisted by IOTSI and I didn't know this. And I was sort of like thrown in to negotiate a, a thing with this person. And I just didn't know what I was doing. And it was only later that I realized like what I had been told to do was like technically illegal and could have gotten us fined. Not illegal like by the law, but in terms of like with the unions, it was going to put us in a really bad place. And I'm like, this is my first time being exposed to like unions in this way. And I don't want my name on some list of like shady ass producers because that's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. But there are these lists and there are people that like have done shady things and the unions look out for them. And I didn't realize I was working with a producer who had a very bad reputation. And so I got kind of clumped in with that. And there were a handful of things that happened. But on that set, every week, I kid you not, I had a, a, a union rep from a local come visit sniff around, check things out. And every single time I was just like so scared because they tell you like, oh, the last thing you want is a union rep visiting your set, you know? But it wasn't anything I was doing. It was just because this person was (laughs) so not respected in the business. The union itself was just like, we're gonna come all the time. And I think crew members were also calling to be like, you guys should just be around. It was like bad, you know what I mean? And that again, was like, I. it doesn't matter how cool the project seems, like I gotta do better at doing my homework because I can't get clumped up into this just because like it's a cool credit and it's a little bit of money, it's not worth it. So being really judicious again of networking, where you're gonna put your time, doing your homework, who are these people like, who do you know that maybe knows them and and making your decisions from there. Like at the time I took whatever I could get because I just wanted the experience. I just wanted to get my name out there and keep working. But obviously now I would never, I would never do anything like that ever again. So. Boy. Boy, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Union reps. Yeah. <laughs> well, on the flip side, what is the proudest moment of your career so far? That's such a loaded question. Oh my God. It's hard to answer because I feel fortunate to have a lot of moments that have brought me pride. And it it isn't, sometimes it's quiet moments. It's not this big spectacle. You know, I think like, I remember when I did Sylvie's love and on that film, because it was period, it was my first time shooting in various lots. We shot at the Paramount lot. We shot at Warner brothers. um, We shot at the Disney ranch and it was like the biggest scale film I had ever done. And I remember one day sitting there at the ranch and we had 
cranes and we were doing night work and it was just, it felt like we're making a fucking movie, you know, that feeling. And I was walking around from the trailer and I just remember sitting there being like, this is crazy. Like me and my team, like we made this happen. We put all this here. We got that technocrane here. We hired the catering company. Like we brought all of this here to make this magic and be in this moment. And sometimes you're in just the craziness and you're exhausted of production that you have to pause and zoom out and remember that the Carolina from five years ago would have lost her shit if she knew that she would be standing here. Have these moments to truly pause and be grateful for how far you've come, even if it's just to say, wow, I now have shows that have two trucks instead of one, <laughs> you know? Um, I think that's important, like, to never lose contact with that magic, like I was saying earlier, of why you got in the game, because it's really hard, and there's a lot of people that want to take that from you, want to strip that away from you, but no one's going to help you retain it. You have to find that for yourself. So it's usually the quiet moments. I mean, it's always nice to be at a festival and have people clapping for you for your work. I think it's those moments that that go unnoticed by most people that I think truly um, stay with me. I feel you. I still get excited doing like the studio lot tours. Same, same. It's hard to not step foot on a studio and not feel that magic still. And I think my whole thing is like the moment you step foot on a lot and there's no magic for you is I think the moment maybe you should reconsider why you're in the business, you know, because it's just, like I said, so much of it is so challenging. But at the end of the day, we do get to do this for a living and we get to be a part of bringing stories into people's lives. And, and that's pretty cool, you know? So we have to remember that. That's very special. And that is a privilege that we get to have. Agreed. And last question before the lightning round. <gasps> oh, my God. Ugh. Without naming specific names, what has been your favorite set you've worked on and your least favorite? And what made them great or not so great for you? My favorite, I can say, I'll say the name because it was so special. For, for sure, of recent times, it was Hong for Jesus. I had one of the best production teams I've ever had in my life. Like, they were just awesome on top of it. It was also one of the first times I ever had, like, the full support of a production team versus it being, like, me and two people. Like, we had a full office, and that was awesome. I think just the magic of being in Atlanta at that time, getting to live there, being on set with Sterling and Regina – watching them work and how brilliant they were. And then Kara Durrett, who brought me on, was just such a joy to learn from. But I think just also getting to watch like the Ebo twins at that time, like Adama and Adane, just step into their power, watching these two incredible women of color who had just turned 30 during prep was just mind-blowing. And just to be there and watch this all unfold in 20 days, which is a very tight timeline to make a movie, was just really magical. And I I, I just felt like really comfortable and in my element and with like the right team, there were still challenges and still annoying people, of course, but like, generally speaking, it was like one of the best sets, I was able to bring a bit of that sense of we take the work seriously, but we don't need to take ourselves too seriously, you know? Sorry, did you say 20 days? Yeah, we shot that movie in 20 days. That's insane. <laughs> Welcome to independent low budget <laughs> filmmaking. Yeah, it's when you have incredible actors and a strong vision and a very kick-ass production plan, it is 100% possible. Yeah. And I think the worst set, I mean, I think that set that I was just talking about that I shan't name, I think just holistically, all of it was just hard and bad and the movie didn't even turn out that good, you know, but I learned a lot about what I, who I didn't want to be and what was not acceptable, what was non-negotiable. And as much as it's, it was a shitty experience, I think that 
to become strong, you have to go through the hard times. And I think everyone needs one of those experiences in their career. I can choose to be this way too. I can choose to be this kind of leader, this kind of producer who gets it done at all means necessary, or I can find a way to stay within the realm of my integrity as a human and still show up and do my best work, you know? And that path is definitely harder, but that for me was like, this is, this is, if I'm going to stay in it, this is who I'm going to be no matter what, for sure. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for the lightning round? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I'm ready. Insert lightning round sound that I'll do in post. For those that are uh, just listening for the first time, the lightning round is five rapid fire questions that Carolina has heard many, many times before (laughs) because she wrote them, but uh, hopefully she hasn't prepped too hard for them and they can still be kind of fun and spontaneous. I haven't thought about it at all. So now I'm like panicking. This is what the get. this is what the guests feel like. Great. Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. First question. What's a song that teleports you to a happy place? Hmm. Dua Lipa levitating. Great song. Great album. My, it was my pandemic album. That album brought me so much joy. It's like imprinted in my heart. Second question. Latest piece of art that moved you could be a book, film, show, anything. It's probably the novel that I just shared on my newsletter. If you don't subscribe to the newsletter, please subscribe. <laughs> um, it's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I'm super late to the party. The book came out, I don't know, four or five years ago. And I'm sure when it was in manuscript form, uh, you know, Reese Witherspoon already optioned it and made it being made already into something. But it was just one of those books of recent times that I just couldn't put down. And I was just like, man, if I could have, if I could make this movie, wow, how cool. Um, check it out. It's a really beautiful book. Fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. Definitely wine. But I'm trying to drink less these days. So I'm trying to find new things to help ease the stress. I haven't found it yet. I'll let you guys know. <laughs> <laughs> What's your go-to wine? Are you a white or a red? Depends on the season. Um, I generally prefer reds, but if I might do a white, it's usually a Chablis or a Sancerre. I love me a rosé. Um, I, just, I just got into orange wines recently, so that's been fun. But yeah, reds, I, I generally like fuller body reds, old, old world, um, but I kind of drink all the things, you know. I love wine tasting. I just love wine culture. I think it's so fun and silly and pretentious in all the best ways. And cheese and chocolate. And it's just all the things. Oh, my God. And cheese and chocolate. Yes, all the things. What is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? It doesn't have to be financial. I'm going to say, even though it's cheesy, I'm just going to say this podcast. It's helped me so much when I get messages from people saying that it's, you know, keeps them keep going. Oh, my God, I'm like getting emotional and talking about it. it. It just makes me so happy because it's been... It's a lot of work to do it, as you know. And sometimes you wonder, oh man, are like people listening? Is this resonating? Is this self-indulgent? Is it just me talking to people I, I admire and recording these conversations? But so when I hear that people have heard of the show and it's helped them, more importantly, it's like, right, right. This is why I do this. This is why I keep going. Yeah. I'm not going to say that making you cry was a goal, but um, I will say that it was. <laughs> I accomplished it. All right, borrowing from inside the actor's <laughs> studio, which was inspired by famed French journalist Bernard Pivot, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You did good. Yeah, just simple. Nothing crazy. You did good and just come on in, you know? <laughs> like, sit on this puffy cloud and drink all the wine and cheese and there's no consequences. <laughs> That's what I would like. Aw, 
And that's how it feels to be on this podcast with you, Carolina. You did it. You finished. Great job. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you to you, Sarah, for those who don't know, and we'll put this in the intro, but Sarah's been working behind the scenes for about six months, helping me stay the course, help me keep going. Like I was saying, sometimes I get stuck and also uninspired. And when I have your bubbly energy, just so excited being like, we should do this and we could do that. It's like, you're right. You're right. We could, we should. And I get excited again too. So so it's nice to have an energy of someone who's just like inspired and excited and motivated to help me stay motivated. So thank you. I couldn't do it without you. You're very welcome. How did I do being Carolina number two? You did great. And you're not Carolina number two. You're Sarah number one. Oh, there it is. Unique snowflakes, all of us. That's what we are. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.